Well, good evening again to you guys. I guess this is the third quarter. I don't know who's winning or losing, but I know we are working it together. Truly excited about sharing with you tonight uh, one of the foundational lessons that transformed my life for the better. It exposed so much in my heart that I didn't realize was there. And it came years ago when I was going to school at the Masters, now called University, but used to be Masters College. And I was working at the time on my Masters in Biblical Counseling. And Dr. Stuart Scott was my advisor. And he said to me, well, what do you want to do? Because back then, you had to do a thesis even to graduate uh, at the master's level. They've since then turned away from that model. But we had to do a thesis, our own paper, to graduate. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I've been hearing a lot about this idolatry stuff. I want to do something on idolatry. He said, have you ever considered idolatrous lust? I said, what in the world is that? He says, consider this. I want you to study all of the Old Testament and look up everywhere from the Old Testament to the New Testament where you see the word idolatry in every form, and I want you to see what you find. Then I want you to look at the word lust from the Old Testament to the New Testament in every form and see what you find. And as I did the research, and I began to see the reality of what God was unfolding through those two concepts, it changed my life. So much confession, so much repenting. It, it helped me to understand the motivation of so many of my decisions. It, I was able to see before I was a Christian and even after a Christian why I did so many things. I was able to also understand through this concept of idolatrous lust why I had so much worry in my life and why I had so much anger in my life. This understanding, as we'll talk about tonight, idolatrous lust is one of the central motivations of your heart when you're not walking by spirit. If you want to know why you tend to jump from church to church, why you jump from relationship to relationship, why you um, refuse certain people and connect with other people, why your sense of well-being is tied to people, Tonight, we'll begin to recognize that you're not motivated in many cases by love for others. You're motivated by what we would call, and I've been hearing this word thrown around a lot, your expectations. And everyone wants to cling to their expectations and talk about, well, is it wrong to have expectations? Problem you'll discover tonight is you've moved beyond expectations to demands. You've moved from, well, the Bible says it's okay to have, to I must have. And you'll discover tonight that there are many things in your life that are in and of themselves are not bad, but you've made them evil because you're willing to sin to get them and sin when you don't get them. And let me tell you a little story. My mother was pregnant with me at 16, and at 16 being pregnant with me, she still went on to finish high school, she went to Berry College, because again, I was born in Rome, Georgia, Georgia boy. She left Georgia, we went to Tennessee, she got a master's at the University of Tennessee, and I remember going to those stadiums and the football games and all the 
excitement that went with that. But my mother, again, by herself, raised myself. She went on to get PhD and just was a hard worker and worked hard in everything. And so by the time we were in Texas, her best friend had moved from Nashville. We'd moved from Georgia to Knoxville, Tennessee, where she went to the University of Tennessee. Then she found work in Nashville, Tennessee, and we were there for a while. And then her best friend moved to Texas and said, girl, there's money in Texas. And my mother said, okay, I'm on my way. And for 35 years, she worked in the hospital district, uh, working in administration, just doing wonderful things. But I say all that to say, by the time I came to Christ, it was the last year of, high, of college, I put my faith in the personal work of Christ. A year later, I ended up in seminary. Now, all this time, my father was, I don't know if any of you remember that song, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Anybody know that song? That was my father. That song was about my father. Wherever he laid his head was his home. And so I would see him every now and again uh, in and out because he had went to Vietnam, got caught up in drugs, and never could force correct. So my last year of seminary, he gave me a call, and it was a kind of interesting conversation, one that hopefully you'll see ties to what we're talking about tonight. And he called me. He said, hey, how you doing? as if he hadn't been around or he's been around every year. And it was like I hadn't seen the man in 20-something years. And I said, um, I think I know who this is. Because this is your father, Reuben. I said, oh. Because I know you're wondering probably why I haven't been around. I said, yeah, it kind of crossed my mind a few times here and there. He says, well, listen, let me just be honest with you. I'm a drug addict. I'm a dope dealer, and here's the one that got me. I'm a professional carn artist. And the things that I am doing and have done, if anyone even knew that I had a child, they would take you out despite me. And because I'm not going to stop doing drugs, I'm not going to stop being a drug dealer, I'm not going to stop being a carn artist, I can't come around you. So that's that. I said, okay. He says, but as a professional carn artist, I want to teach you something. I'm sitting on the phone going, I'm in seminary. <laughs> what are you going to teach me about con artistry and I'm in seminary? One of the best lessons I ever learned. He said, son, there are only two types of people who can ever be conned. The con game is a very simple game, and there's only two types of people who ever con. People who are needy and people who are greedy. He says, if a person is needy, I can manipulate them. I can sell them a story. And because they're so needy, I can take them for house, home, cars, you name it. Because the game of the con is to find the needy and the greedy. He says, if a person is greedy, I can do the same thing. I can take them for everything. And I've taken people for their cars, their boats, their businesses, you name it, because they were needy and greedy. He said, son, but there's only one type of person that the con game never works on, and that's a contempt person. I have nothing to con a contempt person out of. Do you know he was describing James chapter 1? Let no one say when they're tempted that they're tempted by God, but each man is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or in some Bible's evil desire. We could just say by his own neediness or greediness. 
And what I discovered over the years, whenever I was manipulated, as much as I wanted to blame people and blame the past and blame my parents and blame the pressures and blame the problems and pains of life, I was manipulated because I liked what was being sold. I was manipulated because I was needy or greedy, and someone was able to manipulate me, not because they were smarter, not because they had the power, but because I was that selfish. And what I discovered over the years is not that I hadn't studied my Bible, not that I hadn't had a devotion, it's not that I didn't try to serve other people. Whenever I have been manipulated, I liked what was being sold, and I was willing to compromise the truth for the delicious lie that was appealing to my neediness or my greediness. Now, guys, as I learned that, as we're going to see that tonight, that changed my world. Because as I counseled and worked with people who were going through situations or who felt like they were being taken, I would sit with young women who had been seduced by men and gotten into sexual sin and said, but he said he loved me. And I, I knew it was wrong, but he said he loved me. And then he just took advantage of me. And I would say, okay, well, can we build a picture here? Because yes, he took advantage of you, but let's talk about how he was able to take advantage of you. And let's talk about how you used him as well. Because your worship of being loved, you were willing to compromise the most precious thing that God gave you, which was your body. And so, yes, he took advantage and used you and took your body, but he didn't do it forcefully. He didn't put a gun to your head. He did it because your preoccupation with love, you were willing to compromise your body with sex. So who was really using who? He was able to do it not because you didn't know better, because you didn't want better. Not because you didn't know what the scripture said, but you didn't want to do what the scripture said. Not because you didn't understand what was at stake. What you wanted outweighed what God had commanded, and that desire of your soul became a demand of your soul, and you were so needy and greedy, you were willing to compromise. He wasn't smarter than you. He wasn't wiser than you were just selfish. And do you know when you're manipulated, it's not that people are smarter than you or they know better. You just want what you want when you want it. And you're willing to compromise because that's become more important to you than loving God and loving others. When we understand tonight idolatrous lust, we'll begin to see that the problems that we are dealing with in relationships, that we're dealing with in life, we can begin to reduce down to this simple principle of idolatrous lust. And whenever I want something more than God, whenever I want something more than what is right, I am willing to compromise. I think about a lot of situations where, and you've seen this before, where you have these uh, people who understand so much truth, but they're in so much trouble all the time. You say, how is it that they can know all that truth? And I've Seen parents sit with me and they'd say, but I, I raised him up in a Christian home and, and we did homeschooling and we put him in a private school. Why is he or why is she acting this way? I don't understand. They've read the Bible from cover to cover and they go with all the religiosity. And I let them go through all of that because they want to share it. And I say, what you felt to understand is that this was not an issue of what they knew and how they had been groomed. This is an issue of what drives their heart. 
Sure, they read the Bible. Sure, they were baptized. Sure, they were homeschooled. Sure, they knew all those things. But what you didn't know about your child, and now that you get to see, their hearts were overwhelmed with something greater than the truth that God gave. And what they wanted has become more important than what God has commanded. And now they're old enough to act out what they couldn't do when they were younger. I used to tell parents all the time, and I told my daughters, right now you fear me. But as you grow up, you will not fear me. And if you don't start to fear God, there's no telling what kind of decisions you're going to make. Because the less your children fear you and don't fear God, all bets are off. Because if their hearts aren't motivated by the will and ways of God, there are desires that they have turned into lust and will discover their idols that they're running to to satisfy these things. And it's not because they don't know what's right. It's not because they don't understand what's at stake. It's more delicious to satisfy their lustful hearts than it is to submit to the will of God. And for many of you, you have not come to understand that you have these things in your heart. And tonight I want to unfold and unpack them so you can begin to see the idols that you tend to lean on and the lustful desires that you're after through these idols. I want you to understand that when you're fighting and when you're angry and when you're worried, I want you to understand that where there's worship of anything, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of anger, because you show me where you're angry, you show me where you're worried, I'll show you where you have these idolatrous lusts, and I'll show you how easily manipulated you can be. When you care more about what you want than you care about what God commands, I can sway you any way I want to. Not because I'm powerful, but because you're selfish. And I can play on your selfishness and turn you any way I want to, not because I have any strength, but because what you think I can offer you is more important than what God has said to you. When I sit in my classes and I talk to individuals and we have this conversation as I'm sharing with you, I ask a simple question. I say this to them. Who has the most power, the drug addict or the drug dealer? And it always sparks a fight in the class. Some will say, oh, it's the drug dealer, and we need to get those guys off the street. He has all the power. There's someone that says, no, it's the drug addict. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And then I add something to it to confuse them all. I said, how many of you have ever had an economics class? And many of them will raise their hands. I'll say, what is the basic issue or the basic principle of economics? Supply and what? Now, let's think about that practically. If there's no demand, you won't be interested in the, hmm, let me give an example. I've got some eight-track tapes for sale up here, <laughs> okay? And y'all look like a good audience. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll sell you one eight-track tape, and I'll give you 15. Do I have any takers? Okay, okay, you're wearing me down. I'll tell you what. I'll sell you two, and we'll do it at $5.99, and you can have the rest. Any takers? Now, what if I said I've got up-to-date smart TVs, 72 inches, for five bucks, and I promise they're not hot? How many takers would I have in the room? Ah, well, wait a minute. I don't have any power. Why are you listening to me? Because you like what I'm selling. See, drug addicts and drug dealers, the one that has the most power is the drug addict. 
Because the moment he no longer likes what the drug dealer's selling, the power of the drug dealer disappears. By the way, that's how the devil is. The devil has a lot of power, but he really doesn't have power over you when you don't like what he's selling. But the more you like what he's selling, the more power he has, not because he can overtake you, but because you're that selfish. Because you want what you want when you want it. Manipulation works when the thing of manipulation on the table is valuable to you. Manipulation has no power when you're okay with where you are and who God has you with. But the moment you want more than what God wants you to have and you want it at the level you want it, I can tell you anything. How do you think it works when you're manipulated? Let me give an example. And this is, these are some of the greatest cons I've ever seen in life, and they crack me up. Let me transfer now and be that guy that you see on television. I sense in my spirit, Pastor, that someone in the room is having relationship problems. I sense in my spirit right now, Pastor, that somebody in this room is struggling with some financial issues. I sense in my spirit, the Lord is telling me right now that someone in this room is having physical issues. Isn't that all of you at some level? (laughs) The Bible says they have no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. Of course some of you having some financial, relational, physical issues. I'm not smart. That's just reality. But if you're easily manipulated, you hear that and go, And then I say this to you. Do you want to find out how to get over that? Well, for $29.95, you can right now. Why does that work? Why is it so easy? Because you and I don't realize how powerful our desires are. We hide them behind Scripture. Oh, the Bible says a wife is to be a submissive woman, and and we get spiritual. I just want what God wants, and I'm just expecting that God will bring what he wants to happen. Oh, the Bible says that a man should love his wife, and I just want what God wants. And why should I not expect it? Well, see, here's the problem. You worship it. So much so that you're irresponsible in what God has commanded you. Well, what's wrong with expectations? There's nothing wrong with it. But you've gone from expectation to demand. You've moved from would like to have to I live for. It is a worship of your soul, and it ties you to everything this person does or does not do. And you're not loving them, but you know enough Bible to hide your wickedness behind the Scripture. Not recognizing that your desires have become demands. So with that in mind, I want us to learn tonight... Two concepts, and then we'll put them together. We're going to talk about idolatry. I want to give you a working definition of idolatry. Then I want to give you a working definition of lust. And then we're going to pull those two things together to understand idolatrous lust. Now, what I don't cover with that, you will find in my book called With All Your Heart. And I think there are a few of them back there, but if that's something you want more detail in, you can get it on Amazon or anywhere that books are sold. And it really just goes into more details of what I'm going to share with you tonight. So with that in mind, turn to your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. I want us to look at verse 13. And this will be our avenue to understand what idolatry is. And idolatry and lust are two different things, but together 
They will explain so much of why you do what you do. This is where we understand the motivations behind your decisions. This is what we see are the areas where if anyone understands this about you and you don't understand it about yourself, this is how you're easily manipulated into sin. And it's not that hard because when you want what you want more than you want what God wants, I can do whatever I want to do with you. Not because I'm powerful, but because you're that selfish. You say, well, that person manipulated me. And I, I used to say that a lot, and then I'd have to catch myself and say, well, I was manipulated. Why? Why was it so easy for that person to get over over me? Because I liked what they were selling. They were able to push an area of my soul that I didn't realize was so much of a demand of my heart. And the moment I thought that I could get it, I was willing to compromise everything. True story. The first part of our marriage, the early part, we were going to try to get our finances together, and we thought we were going to a financial advisor. And the man said something, I kid you not, that got me hooked in. He said, if you sign on this sheet of paper right here, I can make all your debt go away. My eyes glazed over. I said, you can make all my debt go away? said, yeah, all you have to do is sign right here. And I was like, and my wife said, honey, can we talk for just a minute? I said, but see, this man says he can make all our debts. He says, would you please step outside for me for just a moment? This man can make our debt go away. She said, just give me five minutes. Excuse me. Step outside. Now, again, I don't know if I told you, but my wife was a paralegal for 17 years. She reads contracts. She said, baby, do you understand that what he is selling is bankruptcy? And if we sign, he's going to move us into bankruptcy. Do you know what that does for our credit? But by the way, we are Christians. Aren't we to pay what we owe? Womp, womp. <laughs> Right here is section four. It says this. That is totally contradictory. So I walked back in there. I said, hey, man, look, we can't do this because of section, yeah, section four right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we, so we can't do that. But why was I about to be easily snookered? Because I wanted all of my debt to go away. Good. And if I would have been taken, could I have blamed that man? I would have. And because of my pride, it wasn't my fault. He took advantage of me. No, my selfishness overrode my common sense and my biblical sense. All of us, where we think we're victims, are really villains. Because there are things that we want way more than we should want. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Verse 13, as we understand the nature of idolatry, we're going to work through the definition, but watch what he says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He says, for my people have committed two evils. What's the first evil? They have forsaken me. That's number one. The fountain of living waters, evil number two, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So if we understand the passage, he's saying to these Israelites, 
They have done two evils. One, they've turned from me, the one who can sustain them, to try to create another avenue to give them what they think can sustain them. They've turned from me to create an idol. But watch this. Let's look at the definition to understand that even more. Letter A in your notes, it says this. Characteristics of idolatry. Idolatry is depending on some aspect of life or creation, as you should depend on God, which in Jeremiah was categorized as broken cisterns. Broken cisterns are man-made, unreliable, large pits dug in the rock, covered with plaster used to gather rainwater. When cracks developed in these cisterns, they would hold no water, unlike the reliable natural springs of living water, which always provided water no matter the situation which was symbolizing God. Idolatry is dependence on some aspect of life, some aspect of creation at the level of worship above God to get what we treasure above God. Idolatry is the dependence on certain aspects of life or creation at the level of worship above God, making them the avenue to our satisfaction and the solution to our problems. Idolatry is the preoccupation with some aspect of life or creation above and apart from the creator to bring some longing or longing of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts. Let me see if I can help you understand idolatry from this standpoint. Now, can you guys tell I'm not missing any meals? God has truly provided. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay? And in his provision, he gives me this thing called the refrigerator. And I keep going to that refrigerator even when I shouldn't go to that refrigerator because inside that refrigerator, there's something in there called lots of different kinds of food. But here's the thing. The only reason I keep going to that refrigerator is because of what? So if there's no food in that refrigerator, guess what I do? I'm going to find another refrigerator and I'm going to look in to see if it has what? Food. And if it doesn't, guess what I'm going to keep doing? I'm going to go to another refrigerator. But what's the value of the refrigerator? It's not because I really want the refrigerator. Why am I going to the refrigerator? Because I want... Oh, the idolatry is the thing that I keep going to to get me something that I crave and want. The idolatry is not my end, it's my avenue. It's the thing I keep going to, and when it doesn't work, I'll try to fix it or replace it with something else because of what I believe it brings me that I crave. Am I making sense to you, ladies and gentlemen? So idolatry is the avenue. So point number two is we understand this creation of idolatry. Idols are created when we no longer look to God as the source of our satisfaction. Idols are created when we no longer look to God as the solution to our problems. When we no longer look to God as the source of our satisfaction, we look to his creation to bring it to us. When we no longer look to God as the solution to our problems, we look to his creation to bring it to us. So an idol is anything in this culture, in your creation or in the creation that you make the source of your satisfaction and the solution to your problems. It's not the end it's the means. It's like the refrigerator. The refrigerator only has value because of what you want in it. If what you want is not in it, you don't go to it anymore. But you keep going to it not because of the power that it has, 
but because of what you believe it can bring to you that you crave. And we're going to look at some examples of idols in a moment, but I want you to understand that. Look with me at turning your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. As God is talking about the Israelites, he says something fascinating in this passage in Ezekiel 14, 3. Listen to these words. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Now, let, let me paraphrase what he just said. These men have created things within the world as the source of their satisfaction and the solution to their problems. They don't even understand that because they have made life about themselves and they're looking to these things in the culture to satisfy them, should I even consult them when they turn to me? Should I even have a conversation with them? Should I even give them insight? They have created a God less than me to try to give them something apart from me. Should I even consult them when they talk to me? And how often have you set up idols in your heart? What things do you look to as the source of your satisfaction and the solution to your problems? The moment you understand what that is, you understand that when the pressure in your life hits, the first thing you run to or the first person you call or the first thing you lean on reveals a lot about what you worship. So with that in mind, point number three, here's the criticism and consequences of idolatry. Idolatry is evil in the sight of God. Idolatry leads you away from serving God to serving his creation. Idolatry leads you to stumbling into further sin. Idolatry leads God to address you according to your sin of idolatry instead of your request or the request that you bring to him. I want you to look at some of the things that we turn into idols. And these are some very common things in life that if you start to pay attention to, you recognize that these things mean way too much to you, watch this, not because you care about them, but because you're consumed with what they can do for you. One of the things I learned quickly about certain relationships that people have is that many people are consumed with other people, not because they care about them, but that person brings blank to them. And if they lose that person, they don't get blank. Or if that person doesn't do this, then they can't have blank. And so that person has value, not because they are valuable, but because of what that person brings to their life. It, I used to think that it was flattery when people would say, I don't know what I would do without you. But what are they really saying? You're useful to me. And if you're no longer useful to me, you know exactly what you would do without me. You would dismiss me. So it's not that you care about me. I have value, not because I'm valuable, but what you use me for is so important to you that you want me in your life, not because you love me, but because you're using me. 
which is why you get mad at me so quickly, which is why you're worried about what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, which is why you try to control everything I'm doing, not because you care, but God forbid if you lose me because then you don't get blank because blank is what you worship and I'm just the means to an end. Because as soon as I no longer give you what you want, you want to fix me or replace me or come to counseling to try to convince the counselor the problem is the person. Let's get them fixed so we can get what I want in life. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, we don't use those words. We go, Pastor, I'm concerned about the character of my spouse. I'm concerned about the character of my children. I'm concerned about the Bible says. It sure does. You don't have any control over any of those things, do you? But you know, I should expect that. Are you telling me it's wrong to expect it? Oh, it's not wrong to expect it. Worship it down. Your whole sense of well-being is tied to this person's attitudes and actions, what they do or don't do. You can't have any peace unless they do something a certain way. That's not concern. That's being consumed. That's worship. And it's not that you care about them. You are consumed with what you may lose or gain. Let me give you some examples of what idolatry looks like. Look will be at point number four, categories of idolatry. Idolatry is the dependence on certain aspects of life or creation at the level of worship above God, making them the avenue to our satisfaction and solution to our problems. Idolatry is the preoccupation with some aspect of life or creation apart and above the creator in order to do something. Remember, the, the idol is not the end, it's the avenue to bring some longing of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts. Let me give you some examples of what you can turn into an idol. And I'm going to read the first one in detail, and then after that, I'm just going to go through the categories. But look at the first one. Depending on people as the source to our satisfaction and the solution to our problems, above and apart from God, to bring some longing of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts, making the lust the source of our satisfaction at the end of our problems. Many of you have put way too much stock in people, not because you care about them, but you like what they're bringing to you. And so as a result, they become the idols of your life because you made them the source of your satisfaction, the solution to your problems. And so what began to be something that was okay has become something consuming because you've made it an idol. And not because of who or what they are, but what they bring to you that you worship so deeply. Another example of an idol is depending on places as the source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems above and apart from God to bring some longing of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts, making the lust the source of our satisfaction and the end of our problems. Are you seeing the picture, ladies and gentlemen? Let me give you some other examples. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Depending on products as a source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems depending on perspectives as a source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems, depending on positions as the source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems, depending on power as a source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems, depending on platforms of influence as a source of our satisfaction, solution to our problems, depending on politics as a source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems, depending on money as a source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems, depending on medication as the source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems, depending on the media as a source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems. And you guys don't do this at this church. This is not you guys. Depending on ministry 
as a source of our satisfaction. Solutions to our problems. These are not exhaustive. But these are some of the basic things in life that we elevate to a level of importance. Not because of what it is, but what it brings to us that we worship and crave so much. Take a look at this chart. This is kind of how idolatry works. This is the cycle of idolatry. It starts with the dilemma. We no longer accept and embrace God as the source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems. So as a result, we have a downfall. We turn from God and turn to his creation as the source of our satisfaction and solution to our problems. And then we go in a direction. When God is no longer the source of our satisfaction and solution to our problems, we make man and creation big and God small, resulting in a lack of fellowship with God, leading to deeper sin in our lives. And then the discipline. We can expect God to address our sin of idolatry as he sees fit while not addressing our prayer request as we desire. If we keep resisting God's discipline, we fall further away from God, resulting in further negative consequences to experience as a result. This is just the first half. Idolatry is powerful, but it's not the thing. Idolatry is what you lean on because of the thing that you want more than anything. Many of you in this room, you have reduced people as a means to an end. Let me tell you what happens, and I, I've talked to so many single people, and I've tried to help them see what happens in dating and how when dating becomes more important than being a builder into somebody's life, you're checking out to see if this is the one. So then if you're checking to see if this is the one, you've got the wrong agenda. And so guess what happens? You keep getting these relationships that you're acting like you're married when you're having basically an illegitimate covenant, and you're doing things with this person you shouldn't be doing, and then you discover they're not the one, so then there's a breakup, there's tears, and then there's brokenhearted, and then you go to the next person, and then you try to see if they're the one, and you do all the stuff you did with the other relationship, and then there's breakup, there's tears, and then you go to the next one, and you do this over and over and over again, and then when you think you found the one, you've got all of this stuff that's happened that causes you to not be able to trust because of the past relationships but you fail to understand one simple thing. It's not that you are with the wrong people. You've had the wrong agenda with all these people. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. If you were selfish at the beginning, why are you shocked that the relationship is going in a direction? You were never meant to do those things. You were supposed to be building them up, not setting them up to see if they fit you. That's reducing people to an idol as a means to your end. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with single people to help them to see the tragedy. And here's how I will start the conversation. I say this, John, tell me this. I know you've been hanging out with Susan for a long time. Question for you, John. What are you doing with Susan right now that if she was married to someone else, you would have to stop doing? Uh, well, I guess we couldn't kiss the way we kiss. Um, I guess the late night hugs and affection we would have to stop doing. Uh, oh, wow, there's a lot we'd have to do. So, John, I just have a stupid question. Why are you doing it now? Well, how do I get to know the person? Let me get this straight. The only way you can get to know her is with your tongue in her mouth. 
The only way you can get to Nora is with your hand up her dress. That's how you get to Nora. You didn't do that with your homies, and you know them really well. But I don't think you ever put your tongue in your homies. Oh, man, no, no, no. So the only way you can know this person well is by sexual attraction and doing things with her that First Thessalonians says is defrauding her. Does that sound biblical and righteous? Or does that sound selfish? It's like the man I was counseling, he was on his fifth wife. He said, maybe it's me. I said, you think? <laughs> when you turn people into a means to an end, you don't care about them. You're consumed with them because you want something. And you either try to fix them or replace them because they're only as good to you as they satisfy something in your heart. Now, I've said a whole lot, a little bit of time. We're going to talk about lust in a moment, but I want you to understand idolatry. Idolatry is not the thing. It is what we turn to to get the thing. And we're going to talk about what the thing is in a moment for you and what it is for me and so many people. But I'd like you to take about two or three minutes, go back, look at this definition of idolatry, look at the examples of idolatry, and then look at your life for a moment. So what? How does this apply to you? Take about two or three minutes. We'll come back.
All right, guys, let me stop you there. So if we're understanding what I'm trying to share with you, you go through all the Old Testament to the New Testament, you'll discover that every form of idolatry, it was a means to an end. The power that the idols had were not in the thing itself. It was in what the person believed it would bring them that they treasured. So when you understand idolatry, it's the avenue, not the end. But the power behind idolatry is tied to the lust of your heart. Where there is a different issue, or when you've dealt with the lust of your heart, the idol no longer has power because the power of the idol is tied to the lustful desires that you believe the idol will bring, which leads us to understand the definition of lust. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 13 to verse 14. In James chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, here is James helping us understand the nature of temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his what? Own lust on some Bible's evil desire. Lust is anything that I want more than loving God and loving others. I'm willing to sin to get it and sin when I don't get it. A lustful desire is something that may be good in of itself, but I've made it evil because I want it so bad. Let me break that down for you. The lust of our hearts are longings that have become constant cravings of our hearts in an evil or wrong way. Lust of our hearts are longings that have moved from something we want to something that we must have to something that was once a good thing is now an evil thing, making it a sin in our lives because we're consumed with it above God and his will. The lust of our hearts are longings that have become such a preoccupation of our hearts that we're easily enticed by the devil when it comes to them because they have become the inordinate sinful affections of our soul. The lust of our hearts are longings that have become such a preoccupation of our hearts that we're willing to sin to obtain them, to sin to keep them, to sin when we do not receive them, or to sin when we lose them, making those longings a worship in our lives above the worship and obedience to God. See, the idol, you only turn to it because of the lustful desire you think it will satisfy The idol doesn't have value to you. It's the lust that has value. And you only really deal with the idol to the level that it gives you your lust. And whatever that thing is that you crave and whatever you depend on to give it to you, it's amazing how much power it lacks when it no longer brings you what you want or you no longer want what you want. The world and Satan have... It's amazing how it works, how he's been able to seduce us, because it kind of works like this, if I could simplify it. The order, the flesh, the world, the devil is the appropriate order, okay? The indwelling sin of your soul seduces your mind and takes those pre-existing desires and turns them into these things that you feel like you have to have at a level you shouldn't. So you get seduced by your own heart. Satan controls the world, so what happens is 
He uses the world to bring suggestions to you from the music, the media, and all that is around. And those suggestions are tailor-made to fit with the lustful desires that you're being seduced by in your own heart. And so the suggestions from the culture, and then because God has given Satan some power in the world, he can set up opportunities for you to listen to the suggestions based upon the seduction that's already happening in your heart. You say, oh, the devil has me. No, the devil doesn't have you. Your desires that you've turned into lust has you, and the devil is able to manipulate you because, again, you haven't paid attention to what's seducing you. He said, that devil, he's so powerful. He sure is. But when you stand firm in your faith and resist him, he's powerless. That culture is so much going on. You're right, the culture has so much going on, but the appeal of the culture is tied to the seductions of your soul that you're not paying attention to, that you've turned into lustful desires. I don't know why I can't get away from so-and-so, because you don't want to get away from so-and-so, because so-and-so brings something to your soul that you have been wanting above loving God and loving others. Am I making sense to you, ladies and gentlemen? When you understand the nature of lust, many people have tried to reduce it to sex. Lust is bigger than sex. It's something that I want so bad, I'm willing to sin to get it and sin when I don't get it. Let me give an example of a little bit more of this, our commitment to these things called lustful desires. Turn in the Old Testament for just a moment. Go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. I want you to look with me there. Ezekiel chapter 33. And I want to look at verse 31. I love this verse because this verse describes every Bible-believing church in the United States. And when I read this passage, you'll see how this describes every Bible-believing church in the United States. Listen to these words. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. He says, they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Isn't that interesting? Let me paraphrase what he just said. They love good expositional preaching and teaching. They love sound doctrine. They love orthodoxy, and they love orthopraxy. But they're not doing any of that. They are driven by the lustful desires of their heart. But they love to come hear good preaching, good praise and worship. But their hearts are far from that. Their hearts are consumed with the desires that they're willing to sin to get and sin when they don't get. As they cloud that over with more Bible knowledge, more Bible content, more Bible studies, more worship. They said, I can't understand how I was just praising the Lord one moment and it just turned so quickly the other way. I can because you've never paid attention to those desires that you've turned into lust that you're willing to sin to get and sin when you don't get. Think about how sometimes you can flip the script so quickly. You could be in your car thinking, Listen to music, how great is thy God, sing to me. And then somebody cuts you off, hey! <laughs> then you go back, how great. <laughs> what happened? What's going on? 
you don't even understand how corrupt this thing is and how easy it is to turn you. Not because you're not smart. Not because you don't know better. Not because you don't understand. But because of your stubbornness. You turn your desires to demand. Consider these words. When we're committed to the lust of our hearts, we will still listen to truth and delight in the truth we hear, but we will not obey that truth because we're preoccupied with the lust of our hearts. When we're committed to the lust of our hearts, they become a constant topic of discussion. When we're committed to the lust of our hearts, we're in constant pursuit of obtaining them. When we're committed to the lust of our hearts, we do not find obedience to God something to be treasured above the lust we have treasured in our hearts. Isn't that interesting? But this is a dangerous thing that we have. Part of my counsel when I'm working with people in conflict is to help them understand the conflict is not about the conflict. It's not about the pots and the pans. It's not about the he said, she said. The conflict or the cause or the root of all conflict comes down to lust in one's heart. Turn with me to James chapter 4 for just a moment. Verse 1 to verse 4. James chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 4. James really uses, as he explained the lust back in James 1, 13 to 14, he gives us a working application of it and the power of it in James 4, verse 1 to verse 4. Here's a very interesting question. He says in James 4, 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Why do you fight? Why is there so much conflict in your marriage? Why is there so much conflict in your family? Why is there conflict on your job? Why is there conflict in the church? Why is there conflict in life? He says, is not the, is not the source of your pleasure? Or is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Wait a minute, what are you talking about, James? Then he clarifies it in verse 2, you lust. Let me just stop there. You know why you're always fighting with your wife or your husband about that same old thing? You know, y'all can get along in every other area, but when it comes to blank, you're always fighting. Because in that one area... Your demand for what you want overrides your love for your spouse. And that demand for what you want has become a lustful desire, and you're willing to fight and quarrel because you're not going to let go, you're not going to give up. Listen, you shall not be moved, and not in a good way. Do you know that stubborn is just the opposite of discipline, but it's still discipline? You know how hard it takes for a person to be stubborn, how much power that has. I tell people, I know you can be disciplined because you're very stubborn. If you were to take that power of holding on to what you want and to cling to what God says, you'd be awesome for Christ. Because the very power it takes to be stubborn is the very power it takes to be disciplined. I know you can meditate deeply because what is worry? Do you know how much power and concentration it takes to worry about something? So I know you can meditate. You're just doing it in the wrong direction. Am I making sense, ladies and gentlemen? Notice what he says. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Now, I want you to understand what this is saying. Now, try to illustrate it this way so you can see it from God's perspective. I always use this example, and I want you to track with me. Now, let's say that my wife is here, and she's sitting to the left or to your right. And I notice another woman in the church, and I go talk to that other woman and go, wow, I think this could work. And then I grab the woman by her hand, and I bring her back to my wife and say, hey, honey, <laughs> this just happened, and, you know, I really like her, and I want us to be together. I need your blessing on this. Now, you see how the ladies are looking at me right now? Like, this dude has lost his mind, right? That's how God feels when you take your lustful desires and consume yourself with them and then bring them to him and get on your knees and say, Lord, would you please? He says, are you kidding me right now? You've been willing to sin to get this thing and sin when you don't get it and you have the nerve to get in my presence and ask me to bless you with it? If you're in this much sin when you don't have it, how much more sin would you be in if I gave it to you? See, many of those things that you call expectations, they're really demands, and you've been worshiping them. And the reason why you really can't get them, look at how much sin you're in now because you're not getting what you think you should get from blank. And look at how much you are preoccupied with their attitudes and their actions and what they need to do and not do so that you can have blank. And you wonder why God won't move. He won't move because you don't care about the person. You're consumed with the person because of what you want from the person. And you're on your knees saying, Lord, why won't you change him? Why won't you change her? Why won't you do this? And God is saying, are you kidding me? You're in sin right now behind this person. What would happen if I gave you what you asked for? I'm already jealous for your time and attention. And you've made this the center of your world. The way you looked at me just that moment is how God feels when we keep bringing our girlfriends and our boyfriends and every little other pet thing that's more important to us than God himself. And we keep getting on our knees saying, Lord, please don't let me not have this. You ask and receive not because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. And what is he saying there? The things you have turned into lust. But we're so blinded by the thing because in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But we fail to understand that in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But we made it way more important than loving God and loving others. So what does that look like? The lust of our hearts can lead us to kill others or at least be envious of them. The lust of our hearts can lead us to create conflict with others. The lust of our hearts can lead us to pray selfishly. The lust of our hearts can lead us to be friends with the world system, resulting in acting as enemies of God. That's the cancer of lust. What are some of the consequences of lust? James 1, verse 15, kind of shows us. Let's go back to that for a moment. James 1, verse 15, kind of shows us the cancer or the consequences of the lust of our hearts if we don't address them. It says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. 
The lust of our hearts can lead to walking in further sin in our thoughts, words, and actions. Walking in further sin in our thoughts, words, and actions reveals that one is walking in the flesh, which leads to corruption in one's life, which ultimately leads to death. This could be physical death, where a Christian is unrepentant in sin. He is now disciplined by God and being taken from the earth to be with him, resulting in a loss of reward for eternity as a result of constant disobedience on earth. This could be eternal death, where as a result of an unbeliever's life of sin, he or she now faces the consequences of rejecting God and living a life of sin, resulting in burning in hell forever. I used to tell my daughters all the time, I love you too much to let you have your way, because if I do, you will destroy yourself. God loves us too much to let us have our way, because the more we get it, the more destructive we become. Because we don't understand that these desires in and of themselves are not bad. They become evil because we want them way more than we're willing to love God and love others. And by the way, this is where psychology manipulates you with the word need. They say you have need. I tell people, if you can obey God without it, you don't need it. Let that sink in. What you need is forgiveness. What you need is the word of God. What you need is transformation. What you need are people to invest in your life according to God's design, not according to your selfish desires. That's what you need. But if you can obey God without it, you don't need it. You said, but, but what about when people say that, you know, that book, Love and Respect, and, and they talk about how men need respect and women need love? No. Men like respect and women like love. But, I mean, the scripture says husbands, you know, love your wives. So it, it meant that because women need to be loved, that they need to love their wives. No, husbands love your wives because you're consumed with yourself. And in, to get over your selfishness, sanctification leads you to think about someone other than your spouse or yourself. What about wives be submissive to the husbands? It's because men need respect. no. Women need to get over their stubbornness. And to help them get over their stubbornness and sanctification, they need to think about something other than themselves, which leads them into submission. It's a sanctification issue, not a need issue. Can I love my wife if she never respects me? Absolutely, because the power to love doesn't come from what she does for me. I thought the Bible said the fruit of the Spirit is... Isn't that interesting? Can my wife submit to me if I'm unloving? Absolutely, because her power to submit is not conditioned upon what I do or don't do for her. It's conditioned upon her sanctification in Christ. Hmm. So that book is a manipulation based upon the psychological view that's inconsistent with the Bible. We have elevated our desires into demands and found ways to make them fit the scripture. And it's inconsistent and satanic. Let me give you some examples, categories, of the lustful things that we tend to look at. Look with me at point number nine, the categories of lust of our hearts. Remember, the lust of our hearts are desires we believe we cannot do without being satisfied. We're willing to sin to obtain them, sin to keep them, Sin when we do not receive them or sin when we lose them. 
making those longings a worship in our lives above worship and obedience to God. Let me give you some things that we have turned into lustful desires. Are you ready for this list? And again, this is not exhaustive, but if I were to spend a lot of time with you and you just keep talking, I would begin to pinpoint what you worship on this page and how that has led you to make so many decisions that you've made. I will be able to see why you're so upset with your spouse or your children or your family or your church or your boss. And we can go on and on and on. I can show you where you're worried and I'll show you how you're worshiping something here or where you're angry. I'll show you how you've been worshiping something here. And these things have become more important to you than loving God and loving others. And because of these things, I could easily manipulate you, not because I'm smart, but because your worship of these things, you'll be willing to listen. Consider these things. To be loved by others, that has become a demand or craving we believe we can't live without. To be accepted by others, that has become a demand or craving we believe we can't live without. To be understood by others, that has become a demand or craving we can't live without. To never be hurt or disappointed. To be respected. To be served by others to have personal preferences accommodated at all times, to be viewed as competent by others, to be approved of by others, to belong to someone, to be held in high regard by others, to be significant to others, to be satisfied by others, to maintain a favorable position with others, to be secure and safe with others, to never be alone, to have someone exposed for the way they have mistreated us, to have someone suffer the consequences for what they did to us. If any of these things have become a preoccupation of your soul, you have turned people and many other things into idols so that you can have blank. If I were to look at the last fight you had with someone significant in your life, you know what I've discovered over time? You wanted one of these things so bad and you felt like the person was trying to take it from you or not give it to you, and bam, there's been a fight. And that person sways your mood to happy or sad, not because they are swaying your mood, but because you decide to be happy or sad based upon what you want that's become way more important than loving God and loving the other person. Consider this cycle of lust, the devil and the world. Here's the dialogue of the world. Satan uses the world to speak to the desires of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts. And then what happens? There's a deliberation that goes on in your hearts. As the world speaks to our hearts, appealing to the lust of our hearts while presenting various delights in the world that will lead us into sin to obtain or maintain the lust of our hearts, our minds contemplate pursuing or resisting these worldly desires and then the direction of our lives. If we do not resist the temptation to find our delight in the world instead of in Jesus Christ, we'll live by earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and then the display of disobedience. If we do not resist the temptation to find our delight in the world instead of in Jesus Christ, we'll walk in a lack of love for God and a lack of love for others, preventing a life that is consumed with the lust of our hearts. My brothers and sisters, the power that's overcoming you is not the devil, not the world. It's the desires of your heart that you've made way more important than loving God and loving others. And the world just co-signs 
and Satan just sets up because these things are way more important than loving God and loving others. The last time you were manipulated, the last time you made a decision you felt like you shouldn't have made, but you made it anyway, it wasn't because someone overpowered you. It was because the power of what you wanted, you turned it into a lustful desire, and someone became an idol to satisfy your lust. You want to know why you're worried? Because of idolatrous lust. You want to know why you're angry? Because of idolatrous lust. You want to know why you try to control everything? Because of idolatrous lust. You know why you're fearful of people and scared of what they may say or do? Because of idolatrous lust. You have made the world big and God small, and your desires have become bigger and larger than life. Before we go any further, said a lot. Take a few minutes. Look over the section of lust. Pinpoint the ones, if you get honest, as my grandmother would say, baby, tell the truth and shame the devil. That's what she'd say to me all the time. Baby, tell the truth, shame the devil. Look at those lustful desires and ask yourself, if I get honest, which ones do I find are most important to me? And then look at the idols. Which ones have I found myself clinging to? And you'll begin to see a connection as to what's been happening in your life all these years. Take about two or three minutes. We'll come back. We're going to put those two things together and then talk about resolution to these things. Take about two or three minutes. All right, gang, let's take all of this stuff that we've talked about, and now let's blend them together. We've talked about idolatry. We've talked about lust. Together, we have the concept of idolatrous lust. And again, this is just a little bit of the research I had to do over the years. 
to pull together to help you see. Am I making sense so far? You seen the big picture? And the sad part is, this has been in your life the whole time, and you've been manipulated the whole time, but you have a faithful, patient God who has loved you the whole time. Even though you have been rebellious against him in these things, he's been faithful to love you in all these things. That's the power of the God that we serve. But the reality is, the more we come to terms with this, the more we can see what's been keeping us distant from our God and damaging in relationships to others. Because these things have become way more powerful and then we've tried to spiritualize them and actually try to manipulate Scripture to validate them which is dangerous and evil in and of itself. Consider this. Definition of idolatrous lust. Something you bow down to that you believe will bring you what you truly treasure while making what you truly treasure something you bow down to in the place of the living God. Let me say it again. Something you bow down to that you believe will bring you what you truly treasure while making what you truly treasure something you bow down to in the place of the living God. You see the idolatry and lust there? Bowing down to something in order to get something else that you're bowing down to. All of that's worship. Idolatrous lust. It's the various aspects of life and creation we worship above the creator as well as the basic ways we worship the creation above the creator. So if we put that together, let me give you some examples. In point number 10, the avenues we pursue and bow down to in the form of worship, which is where we understand idols, along with these treasures we bow down to in the form of worship, this is where we get lust, make up idolatrous lust in our lives. For example, bowing down to people, idol, as we should God, to receive the acceptance we treasure and crave in an inordinate way, lust, in place of loving God and loving others, is idolatrous lust. Bowing down to education, idol, as we should God in order to be viewed as competent, which we treasure and crave in an inordinate way, lust, in place of loving God and loving others, is idolatrous lust. Bowing down to money, idol, as we should God to receive the comfort we treasure and crave in an inordinate way, lust, in place of loving God and loving others, is idolatrous lust. Bowing down to control, idol, as we should God to receive the security we treasure, and crave in an inordinate way, lust, in place of loving God and loving others, is idolatrous lust. Are you seeing the picture now? Control is not the issue. We always say that a person is a control freak. They're not a control freak. Control is a means to satisfy or try to keep some lustful desire. Control is like perfectionism. It's an idol to satisfy some lustful desire. Maybe it's for approval. Maybe it's to be held in high regard. Maybe it's to be loved. But all of those things, when you put them together, you start to see the means and the methodology and what's really behind all of it. Nobody wants to control for control's sake. There's always something on the other side. No one wants to manipulate for manipulation's sake. There's always something on the other side. Well, none of us just wake up in the morning and say, oh, I think I'll walk in idolatrous lust. Okay? It's not how it works. But there's a way we get there. And I want to show you, when we don't guard our hearts, when we don't evaluate our hearts, this is how we fall into this idolatrous lust. First of all, your mindset. 
Your mind is set on things below instead of things above. Your motivation, you begin to make self-interest a priority above God's will. And guess what? In your meditation, your desires become preoccupations, resulting in becoming lust. And then your methods, you look for avenues to satisfy your desires, which have now become lust. And then your manner, you bow down and submit to these avenues in order to obtain what you have turned into lust. Thus, making these avenues idols you bow down to in order to get what you lust after. And guess what happens? You're mastered. You become a servant of your flesh. So how are we to deal with idolatrous lust? Proverbs 28, 13 to 14, I want us to turn there for a moment. It gives us the avenue and then I want to put some specifics to this avenue that we see in Proverbs 28, verse 13. Notice what it says here. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You and I must get honest about the things in life that have become way more important than loving God and loving others. We have to stop becoming, yeah, but Christians. We have to stop trying to hide behind theology and start using theology to expose our hearts. We have to stop trying to hide behind expectations to say, well, I mean, is it wrong for me to have expectations? No, it's not wrong for you to have expectations. You're way beyond expectations. You're in worship. You're focused so much on what you want, and you've reduced another person as a means to the end, but you're so blinded because the thing that you want is not evil in and of itself, but you don't understand the evil that you're walking in for it. And you're quoting scriptures, but not seeing the motivations of your heart behind the scripture. Part of my job as I work as a shepherd, as I work in counseling, is to bring these things to light so that people can see the reality of it and be broken before the Lord and begin to confess and repent. So what does it start with? Letter A, identify desires or cravings that have become the preoccupations of your minds to the point of lust. Identify the avenues you have pursued and thus have bowed down to in the place of God to obtain these desires or cravings that have preoccupied your minds to the point of lust. Identify sinful thoughts, attitudes, behaviors that have come about as a result of these desires or cravings that have preoccupied your minds to the point of lust. Confess the lust, the idols, the sinful thoughts, the sinful attitudes, and sinful behaviors you have identified to God and others accordingly. Replace your lust, idols, and thoughts sinful attitudes and sinful behaviors you've identified with, with genuine worship of God, godly thoughts, godly attitudes, godly behaviors. Decide to make God priority over all and everything. Guard your heart. Now, one of the things I give people, and I want you to look at this, is that I give them this journal that I'm going to share with you. I want to walk through this journal with you. And I ask them to take these questions and make copies of them for seven days. 
And with this journal, I say to them, I want you to do this journal at night, not in the morning because you haven't sinned good enough yet. But I want you to go through the whole day and then come home. And then I want you to go through this journal for the next seven days. And before you go through the journal, I want you to ask God to unfold to you the reality of your heart before his presence, for his glory and your good. And as you pray that prayer, then I want you to sit down, go back over, if you would, the things that I've taught, and I'd have them weekly. For the next week, I want you to study this idolatrous lust. I want you to read the passages, and I want you to do that during the day. But at night, when you come home for the next seven days, before you're sleepy, before you get distracted by everything else, I want you to answer these questions. Question number one. What did you want today, and what were you expecting to happen today? Question number two, who did you want it from or expect it to come from? What desires would this fulfill in your life? How much of your time was spent thinking, speaking, and acting on what you wanted? What ways did you send in thoughts, words, and actions to get what you wanted? What ways did you send in thoughts, words, and actions when you did not get what you wanted? What person or persons did you sin against to get what you wanted? What person or persons did you sin against because you did not get what you wanted? What were your attitudes and actions like towards God and others as a result of getting what you wanted today? What were your attitudes and actions like towards God and others as a result of not getting what you wanted today? What biblical standards or principles could you use to explain your thoughts, words, and actions today? What biblical standards or principles should you have practiced and thoughts, words, or actions today? Or your thoughts, words, and actions towards others based primarily on how you felt or what God commanded? What would happen if you actually sat down for the next seven days after you keep studying idolatrous lust and fill that out? What do you think God will begin to show you about what's been important that shouldn't be important? You think you might start to find some idols in your life? Yeah. Think you might start to see what lustful desires? Absolutely. And that's when you stop making excuses and start making confession, start repenting, start replacing. As you do that, you will find the power of these desires will start to diminish and the appeal of idols will start to be powerless. But they only have power because of your preoccupation. Please hear me well. No one can con you without your participation. You must be what? Needy or which ultimately speaks to the lustful desires of your heart that have become way more important than loving God and loving you. Now here's what we're going to do. We want to take about 10 minutes. I want you to go get your snacks. And then in 10 minutes, when you come back, we will spend some time going through these questions, all right? Let's stop right here for a moment. Take about 10 minutes. Go get your snacks. Let's come back and chat for a moment. First person, questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, you name it. All right, you're going to make this night quick for me. Anybody? They're all chewing. <laughs> all right, no question is a dumb question. Yes, sir. 
do the lust and the idolatry always go together, or can you have idolatry independent of lust and lust independent of idolatry? No, sir. Um, where there is idolatry, there's always lust. And where there is lust, you're going to try to find something to give you what you crave. So the power of idolatry, though, is found in the lust. That's why to find someone's idol not as significant as learning what their lusts are. Because you can switch idols to satisfy lustful desires. So, does that make sense? Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, somebody I do can be gambling, but they're not. Um, they're not. Uh, they don't. They're not tempted by say uh, another like money necessarily, or or um, drinking or woman. But gambling is what the idol is to fulfill their lust. And another person, you you, you couldn't get them to gamble. It it, it doesn't. It, it means nothing to them. But their idol is, is drinking, right? You know. And sometimes it's a combination, but some, some, you know, you, you couldn't get them to drink, you couldn't get them to gamble, but boy, they like the woman, you know, and that's their idol, you know, but they could, all three people could be using different idols to get the same, to, to, for the same lust. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Questions? Comments, thoughts? It's never wrong to expect anything from anybody. It's wrong to demand anything from anybody. Never wrong to expect, but it's dangerous to live for it. Call worship. In uh, Philippians, it talks about that God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And you had mentioned, too, that people can be in the Word and going to church and and uh, be, uh, from all outward appearances, it looks like they're following the Lord. So, but how would you explain that verse? Or how does that relate to temptations? Good question. So, God works in us to will and work for his good pleasure, but Ephesians says that we also grieve the Holy Spirit. So, we have the ability to say no to God, which is why we must confess our sin. Christians are the only people who have the power to obey and disobey God. That's why when we sin now, it's willful. Before we were Christians, we were slaves to sin. But Romans chapter 6 says that sin no longer has dominion over us. So now when you and I sin, it's by choice, not by slavery. And that's why we must make a lot of confessions and not make excuses and to say, okay, I chose, but why? And you'll begin to see that it comes down to these underlying motives of idolatrous lust and pride together. When my mind is set on self, and I'm consumed with what I want 
and I'll turn anything into an idol, which is why there's worry and anger or depression. Those are the symptoms of a deeper source, which is the pride and idolatrous lust in my heart. That's kind of the connection of how that works. Anybody else? Questions or comments about this? How many of you, this is the first time you've heard this? Curious. Okay. A few of you, first time. Gotcha. Who's Anybody their pastor? Else? Good grief. Yes. Sir? I said, who's their pastor? Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk to that guy. <laughs> Anybody else? Questions? What about comments? I would love to hear what you think about what you've heard. For some of you that this is your first time hearing this, what do you think about this? What's the so what for you? I'm curious if anybody would share their hearts on that. Okay. Got you. Think about idols, but also think about lust. I know we're so used to saying idolatry but I want to push you to think about idolatry and lust because they really do go hand. Anybody else? What does this lead you to think about or your first time hearing it? What, how does it resonate with you? Yes, sir. It was very convicting. Very convicting. <laughs> I feel that way all the time. <laughs> Anybody else? Questions, comments about these? I have had to learn that does not satisfy my soul. Sometimes my soul is hungry, but I think it's my belly that's hungry. Too often we try to use food to satisfy what it can't satisfy. And people, and places. Anybody else? Questions, comments, thoughts? Going to make it easy tonight because I'm going to go and lay down going once, going twice. Yes, sir. Uh, I got a question on the one about depending on ministry. Yes, sir. Can you explain that a little deeper? Sure. Uh, there are a lot of people who use ministry as a means to bring validation to themselves. Or they use ministry as a means to gain some form of approval. Or they use ministry as an avenue to be held in high regard. Or they use ministry as a means to be loved. And so what happens is ministry becomes an idol to satisfy those lustful desires. It's not that they care about the people. They're consumed with the benefits that ministry brings to them. And when you see that, they become very hostile and very territorial because it's not about 
how God is using that to the glory to change lives into himself. It's when I do this, it makes me feel good about myself. When I do this, it makes me feel validated. So ministry is reduced as an avenue to those kind of lustful desires. And I've talked to a lot of people where I've said, you don't love people, love benefits that ministry brings to you. Which is why you're so controlling. Which is why you're manipulative. Which is why you hold people hostage. That, does that make sense? Anybody else? Questions or comments about these? Yes, sir. <laughs> All our desires are mixed. I mean, you can have desires that are pure than others, meaning um, you're not as selfish with them. But we're not 100% pure in anything that we want, which is why we serve an awesome God who's perfecting us because we're not yet perfect. But... Um, you know, anything you do is going to be, but in some cases, it may be mixed more with that which is good, not that which is bad. And the flip side. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's why we have the beam of judgment, by the way. The motives of our hearts will be. You know, after listening to you now several times, I would be afraid to have a conversation with you. Because everything that I would say, and you said that you're going to be quiet and analyzing, uh, it would force me to want to try to give answers. You understand what I'm saying? I do. I do. I, and isn't, is that true? Especially if you're a professor, I think your students would be scared to death to have a conversation with you. I put them at ease. I put them at ease. I, I tell them, hey, listen, we're just having a conversation. So I try to make people be relaxed. And as much as I can, to tell them, I'm, I'm not going to come at you. I'm not going to say anything. I, let's just talk. So I, I try to get people as relaxed as they can. But there's some people that are like this when they talk to me. I'm like, it's OK. This is not going to affect your grade. I'm not going to analyze you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to say anything. We're just talking. But if you ever want to know, I'll tell you. <laughs> On the flip side, I did have lunch and dinner with you. So if you guys want to know anything about me, just talk to Dr. Owen. I know a lot about your path. No, I'm <laughs> in America, we live in a country of wealth. Yes, sir. So it, to me, it's a little confusing how you choose where you live what you have to you you have needs that need to be satisfied but that you got to be careful with that word <laughs> so <laughs> how do we assess that all how do we go through that sure what i teach our congregation and my congregation is that when god gives you more than what you need it's for two reasons to enjoy and to share and so there's nothing wrong with having more than what you need. You rejoice and thank God. Just don't be selfish. 
That's what First Timothy talks about, how he provided us with richly for things to enjoy. You know, and then he says, for those who are rich on this side, and by the way, a biblical view of rich means having more than food and clothing for a day. So guess what that makes everybody in this room? Rich. I try to tell people the world has a view of richness, but God makes it very plain in 1 Timothy 6. Being rich is having more than food and covering. So more than that, we're all rich. But he says to us, enjoy it, but also share. So I tell people, if God has allowed you to have a wonderful home or four or six-bedroom home or the ability to travel, enjoy it. Just don't be stingy. You know? Because it's God's blessing on our lives. And, you know, I try to encourage people. How could I say this in a way that get it over? There are certain people who believe that there's some spirituality to being poor. As if that makes you more spiritual. But how many of you have seen some mean people who are poor? <laughs> it doesn't make you any more spiritual. And it's not about what you have. It's about what you do with what you have and how you glorify God with it. You know? So I would tell people all the time, we live in a rich country. Praise the Lord. Enjoy it, but share. You know? When you get a raise, the church should get a raise. Does that make sense? Am I helping you, Pastor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about that. Thanks for working with me. <laughs> Um, I'm not here to embarrass my daughter because I'm not talking about her, but I do have some people that I love dearly that um, what do you do when you come to a point that you know their life is in jeopardy and they don't want to understand this type of counseling? I know you've mentioned, you know, husbands, wives, you pray, you work on yourself. How do you pray, and what is the next step have you experienced in your church? I know you have, because I know your life. What do you do to protect these people during that time that you're praying and loving on them? Does that make sense? It does. Let me give you two words first that are going to be hard to hear, but it's something you have to learn. Suffer well. That's the first part. What I mean by suffer well is... Sometimes the protection you want to give your family or your children, they don't want it. And you can't force it. And that's where you have to learn to suffer well. Pray mightily. Try to provide any resource you can and any insight you can. But where they're not willing, ask God for favor on their fall. Ask God to be merciful with them. Ask God to not take them out. I had two daughters who were in sexual sin for years and would not allow me to protect them. And I had to do church discipline on both of them to the point where they finally repented out of their sexual sin. But it was excruciating because they would not let me protect them. And I had to give them over, as Scripture says, now you would never know that they were in that deep of life of sin. They are serving the Lord mightily. But I can't say that's going to happen for everybody. I could just say I had to suffer and I had to take my hands off because I could not do 
what was in my position as a father to do. So I had to learn to suffer well. And they went through it. And when God got a hold of their hearts, they were different ladies when they came back to Christ. So I want to encourage you there. You can only do what people will let you. And the opportunities that you have to talk, try to limit it to caring concern, not bringing up the issue. But then every now and again, bring the issue back up. But if every time you talk to them, your sense of urgency to get them out of it, in most cases, they're not going to listen. And it's not because you are not giving truth. But just remember, in the book of Romans, when it talks about when people are in the flesh, they are hostile towards God. If they're in the flesh and they're hostile towards God, and you're representing Christ to them, what do you think they're going to be towards you? Hostile. Think about Galatians 6, 1, when it says, if any man is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, go restore such a one, but be careful lest you be tempted. If I'm struggling with deception, and you confront me about my deception, what am I probably going to try to do towards you? Feed me. If I'm an angry person and you confront me about my anger, more than likely how am I going to respond when you confront me? Because I'm in the flesh. And it takes the power of God to break it. So I would say to you, my, my sister, one parent to another, suffer well, pray a lot, pray God's mercy. Does that, does that make sense? Anybody else? Any other questions, thoughts about this? All right, going once, going twice. Thank you so much. See you tomorrow night.